who paid our debts and now has things to say to the church as we live in the real world, the tough world, and the world that he wants to save. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2 tonight, and that's verses 12 to 17, and it'll be on the screen overhead and also in the Bibles in front of you on page 1237. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now we're inviting Amy to come up. And Great to see you all here tonight. Um, as Mari said and Mark said, my name is Amy, so if I haven't met you before, I'll hopefully will after the service. Um, just wanted to say a big shout out and well done to Truman, who was on drums for the first time tonight. And also to Danny, I don't know where you are, Danny, but oh, there you are, I can see, who prayed, uh, not for the first time, but prayed here up at church for the first time and just did a beautiful job leading us through prayers. So thank you so much, Danny. Well, it is a privilege to be sharing uh, on this topic tonight. I must admit, when Nick said we're going to do a series on Revelation, I was like, ooh, that's going to be tough. But having said that, third week in this week, and I have really enjoyed it. I'm not sure um, how many of you have been here. Last week we heard from Amanda on the ch uh, from the letter which was to the Church of Smyrna, and then two weeks ago Nick started started us off on the, ch the letter to the church of Ephesus. So tonight we are looking at the church of Pergamum. And it is going to be a journey. I'm going to take you through. There's been a lot that I've had to learn, and I'm going to take you on that journey with me. And I'm really believing that God's going to speak to you tonight, uh, as he did all those years ago to the church in Pergamum. So just to give you a bit of context, last week, as I said, we looked at the church of Smyrna, and Pergamum is about 60 um, miles, I was going to say kilometers, it's actually miles that I've got here, north from Smyrna. And it was built on a hill, a thousand feet from, up from ground level, about 300 meters up. It had a beautiful view, so it was quite majestic when you could look out and see everything. Um, and also they had created it to have quite a strong military security for the city, being up so high and sort of away from everything. This was the political capital of the Roman province of Asia. 
And when John wrote this letter, Pergamum had actually been the capital city of the region for more than 300 years. The city was a well-known centre for culture and education, and it had one of the greatest libraries going around at that time. They had 200,000 volumes. It was pretty impressive. There was a clear hierarchy with how they set out um, where people lived on the hill. So if you were poor, you would be at the foot of the mountain down the bottom. The next level up was for the business district. The next level up was for the rich and they would live in villas. And then finally, the top level would be where the important public buildings were and the temples. It's been likened to New York City, actually, that when you were driving, and maybe even Melbourne, just driving in, you know, I know we used to live in Geelong, always driving into the city, you'd see the city from afar, this big epicentre in New York City, very much the same. Everything was happening there in Pergamum. So, what did Jesus want to say to this church? What does he want to say to us as Q Baptist Church tonight? Now, before we start, I just want to explain, I'm going to use a framework tonight, which Nick referred to two weeks ago. It basically outlines five sections of how we can break down the text. And so we're going to use that tonight. You should see it here up on the screen. And just so you know, that's how we're going to look at it. So first of all, we'll start with characteristic, which is showing us part of Jesus's character and who he was and who he is today. So verse 12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Pretty confronting start. I was thinking, I don't really write letters anymore, but if I was writing emails, I'd be like, hi, how are you going? Hope you've had a great week. And then you get into the nitty-gritty. Jesus is um, straight up with it. There's no niceties here. There's no warm-up. He is straight to the rebuke and to the reminder of telling this church who he is, that he is in authority that he is the one that holds the double-edged sword. We can't really avoid that or make that sound nicer than it is. It's almost as if he's saying, come on, listen up, people. I've got something really important to say. Giving context to this, in Pergamum, it was actually one of the few cities that at the time, uh, they had the capital punishment law in place. So Roman soldiers would walk the streets with their double-edged swords. And if the proconsul, the Roman governor, or who was the Roman governor of the province, wanted someone to be executed, they would get executed. So this sword had a lot of meaning for the people at Pergamum, that they would see these people in authority figures walking around and knowing actually at any moment, if they decided to, they could be, someone could be killed by capital punishment. So this double-edged sword was a huge threat to those people physically, and Jesus uses this to remind them, hang on a minute, I am the one that is the ultimate judge that gives life or death and decides those things. So he brings us straight into this point. We'll talk a little bit more about the sword as we get later on into the text in verse 16. We'll move on now to the compliment. So what does Jesus have to say that's an encouragement or something that he's complimenting the church on? And verse 13 says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Satan's throne. I was reminded this morning at church, Lucy Tharrett did a wonderful kids talk to the kids, and she talked about Noah's Ark, and I was thinking, there are so many instances in the Old Testament, um, and the New Testament, but the Old Testament particularly, where we see these people that are living in such an evil way, their, their habits, their behaviours are just 
awful. And, you know, Noah's Ark was an example of that where God actually wiped out basically everyone except for Noah and his family and the animals. And here, Jesus uses the words Satan's throne. There is actually nowhere else in the Bible that mentions Satan's throne or where Satan lives. So you're getting the idea now that this place is awful. This place is pretty dark. There's some pretty dark things happening. It's the worst of the worst. There are quite a few differing opinions as to why it was described in this way, why it was so bad, what qualified it to be so evil. Uh, It could have been because it was the centre of the imperial cult of emperor worship, where their ruler, Caesar Augustus, was worshipped as God. And as we heard last week from Amanda, that everyone was actually commanded to say, Caesar is Lord. That was their passage into work and society and culture, making it a huge challenge for Christians. Or it could be referred to as Satan's throne because of the various pagan gods that were worshipped there. Now, you should see a quote up on the screen now from Dr. Joseph Stoll. He says, every type of deity was there, no matter what you desired or what you needed or what you dreamt for, the gods would offer to fulfill that for you. They had Zeus. Zeus had a huge altar that stood at the top of the hill. It was 34 metres by 6 metres in size. And if you go to Pergamum today, uh, there's still remnants of this altar there. He was the king of Mount Olympias, where all the gods and goddesses dwelt. He was known as the king of kings. Does that phrase sound familiar? The people in Pergamum believed that if you needed something done, that this was the altar to visit. Then we had Asclepios. He was the god of healing and knowledge. And there was basically the first big medical center hospital set up. Now, when you hear that, you think, that's a really good thing. Like, you know, we want hospitals and medical centers. But this was a place of um, worship to this god of healing. And there were some very strange things they did. They actually used to get the sick to lay down in the temple at night in the hospital. And then they would release snakes in there that would crawl over the bodies. <laughs> I see some of you squirming there. And basically, these snakes would represent healing. If a snake crawled over you, that represented healing. And the symbol of Asclepius was a snake. And in fact, some places in the world still today, you'll actually see medical symbols with a staff or a sword and two snakes wrapped around. And that is actually dates all the way back to Asclepius, the god of healing and knowledge. Then we have the god of wine and orgy called Dionysus, or the god of wine and revelry. This was the god of pleasure. In Pergamum, they would hold regular parties, banquets and festivals in honour of this god. People would come and get drunk and partake in sexually immoral behaviour. There was no restraint sexually, and sometimes these parties would get so out of control that they would end in the loss of life. Then there was the goddess of Demeter. If you're in need of good food or a good crop, you would go to this temple. There was the goddess of wisdom called Athena. If you wanted to be wiser, you would go and see Athena. These are just some of the gods that had temples in Pergamum. And these are just some of the places that the people in Pergamum would visit regularly. We can really start to see why this is referred to as Satan's throne and where he lives. Frank Gablian says, Pergamum was an idolatrous centre and to, and to declare oneself in that place a Christian who worships the one true God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, would certainly provoke hostility. 
The next part of the compliment to the church in verse 13 says, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There is a sense that these early Christians have been staying strong in their faith and have clung to the name of Jesus even when facing great persecution. There's not a lot known about Antipas except that he was a faithful servant, that he was uh, faithful to the end, that he would not compromise on his faith. And um, you'll see later on in the text, this is a big issue for some of the believers in Pergamum, that they weren't able to, to stay true to what they believed in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Antipas was actually killed in one of the most horrific ways. I'm actually not going to go into it. I was talking to Mark about this last night, and I said, I don't think I can actually share this. It's so gruesome. But let's just say that when I did research, this was probably one of the worst ways in ancient history. Like, you think of all the bad ways that you can be killed, executed in ancient history. This was one of the worst possible ways. And really, to say it as nice as possible, he was burned to death, but it was a shocking and horrific death. And we can see again more and more why this is Satan's throne. I find it really interesting that Jesus makes a point to say to the church in Pergamum that he's actually seen their suffering. He's actually realized that they have been through something traumatic, that they've seen their friend, their fellow believer Antipas killed in, a, in an awful way. And he actually sees what they have endured. And I really believe that's for us tonight as well, that he sees what you endure. He sees your suffering. He acknowledges that tonight, and I believe that he said that to the church in Pergamum all the way back then, but he's saying it to you again tonight. He sees the sacrifice you make at times for following him, and those times where you just wish that you could blend into the crowd, but you know you have to, um, st you know, you have to stand up for what you believe in, or maybe you have to choose to live a different way because of your faith. He sees that. It's a different type of suffering, but it's still a suffering, and, and I believe he wants to encourage you in that tonight. I wondered, you know, if it was someone in this church community or maybe someone you knew that was a, that was a um, Christian that was killed for their faith in this awful way, like Antipas was, how would you respond? Would you be thinking, where are you, God? Are you not here? Where is your power? Would you still be praising his name? It's an interesting thought for those people at that time, what they must have gone through. And Jesus stops and he really validates them in that. Let's move on to the criticism. So verse 14. So this is what Jesus is criticizing some of the believers in the church about. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. How many of you are familiar with the story of Balaam and Balak? Just pop your hand up if you think, yep, I know that story. And this is not like shaming, because I will be honest, I did not know much about this at all before I had to speak tonight, and I feel like I've just learned a whole section of the Bible, which has been really great. It, does anyone know what Balaam has in common with Shrek? Talking donkey. Well done. Now, if that's not enough to make you want to go read this story, I don't know what is, because there is... Seriously, a talking donkey in the Bible. Shrek did not invent that. So this story is back in the Old Testament in Numbers 22 to 31. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining this story because we actually need to understand who Balaam was and Balak, but more so Balaam, so that we get the idea of what Jesus is 
telling the church in Pergamon because he's actually using Balaam as an example of this is what not to do. So what was it that Balaam did that we're to learn from? So I just want to tell you this story. So back in Old Testament, Numbers 22 to 31, uh, Balaam was a pagan sorcerer and a prophet. Just let that sink in for a bit. Um, who King Balak orders to come and curse the Israelites for basically being on his land. So the Israelites are on their big 40-year road trip to the promised land, and they decide to stop and camp uh, on Balak's land, and he's not happy about this. So he thinks, I remember there's this guy, Balaam, and he can, he can curse these people. He's a sorcerer or a prophet or whatever he is. This is probably what he's thinking as king, but I know he can curse them. So he sends his men to um, go and fetch Balaam. Balaam checks in with God. God says, don't go. So he says, no, I can't. But then um, they come, more men come, higher up officials, and they convince him, and he goes. Then there's a little section in there with the talking donkey, so you really got to go back and read that. Um, but then we move past that. Balaam gets to um, basically the place where Balak has taken him, and he is ready to curse these uh, Israelites, but he can't. He can only give blessing. He speaks forth all these blessings that God gives him, and he cannot physically curse them. And he says, well, I can't because God is giving me blessings for the Israelites. So that didn't work out so well. And when we read the first part um, about Balaam, we can actually sort of think, well, this guy's all right. Like, he's a bit of a stand-up guy, really. He's sort of doing what the Lord says, and he's going, and he's giving the Israelites blessings. But it's later on in Numbers that we start to realize what's happening, where Balaam encourages the Israelite men to marry and to be involved with the Moabite women, and this leads them and the Israelites to start worshipping other gods. So these Moabite women worship other gods, and then the men go and marry them and start to do the same. The big sense with Balaam is that he had a foot in each camp, one with the Lord and one with the world. One is a prophet and one is a sorcerer. His beliefs were confused and his toxic influence became detrimental to others. We'll pause on Balaam for a minute and also talks about the Nicolaitans. And you might remember two weeks ago that Nick talked about these people. We don't know heaps about them, but really they were people that believed something that wasn't true, proclaiming a form of Christian faith that wasn't correct uh, and was really leading people astray. They distorted the truth of the gospel. So similar to Balaam. Both Balaam and the Nicolaitans believed that grace would cover everything. They had this idea in their theology that they were free from sin, that they could do what they want and God's grace would cover them. This basically allowed them to get away with doing what they wanted and that they could accommodate themselves into the various religious and social requirements of pagan culture that they lived in and do it with a guilt-free conscience. The interesting thing I find here is that Jesus doesn't use Balaam as an example because he started worshipping idols himself or because he married a Moabite woman himself. The point with Balaam is that Jesus refers to him because he was leading others to worship idols and to be led into pagan activities. He was drawing others into that. And in Numbers 31, 16, if we go back to the end of the story, it says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now, because of Balaam's confused faith, he actually became a stumbling block for the Israelites and actually led 24,000 Israelites 
to be murdered because they were worshipping other gods and had, <coughs> excuse me, made a compromise. 24,000 people. I want to briefly look at 1 Corinthians. And I might get you, if you've got um, a Bible in front of you there, you can look it up on your phone. Because we're going to read a bit of a chunk of text here. So it's 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 13. So grab a Bible in front of you. I don't know the page number, sorry, because I've got a different one here. But 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 13. And the reason I want to look at this is because it gives us some more insight into what Jesus is talking about when he refers to eating food sacrificed to idols, but also about our role as leading other Christians and how we can cause others to stumble. So from chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, it says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in, idols, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. I was trying to think of a modern example of this. Basically, this passage, and go away and read it again. Let it, let it soak in again. Basically, I'll give you actually the example in a second, but Paul is talking about in Corinthians that really, um, idol, no idol. He knows as a believer in Jesus that God is a true God. But for some people around him, weaker in their faith, they were looking to him and seeing what he did. So they used to um, obviously use meat a lot to make sacrifices, but then that meat would often end up in the markets. And so there was often this big question mark for Christians, if can we eat the meat that is being sold at the markets even though it's been used to be sacrificed to idols? So this was this big contentious issue. And basically Paul is saying, well, you know what? I know that if I ate that meat, it wouldn't really be a big deal for me because it's, uh, it's not an idol for me because God is who I serve. But someone else might see him, a weaker Christian, and think, oh, so Paul's eating that, so that must be right. So then we're worshipping idols and it, we go along on that path. And so Paul in the end says, you know what? I just make the choice that I won't do that because it's not worth it. And I was thinking of a modern example of this years and years ago now. Mark and I, when we were back in Geelong, Mark was a youth pastor for a number of years at, at our old church, and, and I helped lead that with him. And we made a decision fairly early on to decide not to drink. Now, this wasn't probably a big deal for Mark and I, because in all honesty, we don't love the taste of alcohol, so it wasn't like a huge sacrifice. But at the same time, it was something we decided to do. And not because 
we were trying to be self-righteous and, and trying to be all legalistic that, no, you shouldn't drink. But because at the time, there was a culture of youth, so year 7 to 12, that this was a struggle of theirs, that they were working out, how do I go through life? Do I drink? Do I get drunk? What am I meant to be doing? And so, of course, we felt that as leaders of that, we needed to set the bar high. We needed to be above reproach and not do that. Now, we wouldn't, you don't put that same thing in every situation in your life, but for that season, that's what needed to happen so that we felt we weren't causing others to be a, stum, you know, to be a stumbling block to others. The really important point here is one thing, it's one thing for us to be confused or unbalanced in our faith, but the issue that Jesus had with some of the Christians in Pergamon was this point that they were not only making those compromises themselves, but they were encouraging others to do so. I want to ask you two questions now. Can you think of something in your own life that possibly causes other Christians to stumble? And the second question, have you allowed confusion or compromise to creep into your faith? I'll ask those two questions again, and I just want you to reflect, maybe ask the Holy Spirit as I'm saying these questions. Can you think of something in your own life that possibly causes other Christians to stumble? Or have you allowed confusion or compromise to creep into your faith? I encourage you, if in this moment you can think of something, that's great because it means God's bringing something to the surface. I encourage you not to just have that as a fleeting thought. But to go away tonight afterwards and pray about that. Ask God for help around that. Ask him, what could I do differently? Or where am I going wrong here? And he's so ready to talk through that and to lead you and guide you through that. We move on to Jesus' command to the church in Pergamum. Verse 16. Pretty straightforward. It says, repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's this real sense there that actually, as a body of believers, they had a responsibility to each other, that he says, I will fight against them. So in other words, maybe the ones that weren't struggling with this, it was like, you guys have a responsibility to help your fellow believers because they are making compromises, they are being led astray. And I think that's something we can take away tonight, that we want to be a church family that's not rebuking and judging every week. Hey, I saw you, you parked terribly last week. That's what happens to me at Res. I get, uh, I get roasted every time I park the car badly and I love it. Not those sorts of things, but things where maybe, you know what, such and such has been a little bit down. I might just catch up with them and have a chat. And who knows what's going on in that person's life. And, and an offer to encourage and to support and to stand with them and to pray with them. Like, this is what we're called to do as a church. You don't need a, a bachelor in theology to go and have coffee with someone and encourage them and pray for them. So I encourage you to do that. There is a responsibility within a church community to help each other when they're led astray and when there's compromise, when perhaps they're not living God's fullest for them. So repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We again have this reference to the sword and in the beginning it talks about the double-edged sword. Now, my dad's a bit of a, a weapons guy. <laughs> he doesn't use weapons, but he knows a lot about weapons. And I was chatting to him about this, and he said, well, the significance... <laughs> Bri's laughing because she knows my dad here. He's a bit of a hick, a bit of a farm hick, but he's very good. And he knows the Bible well. But he was saying, you know, the double-edged sword, the significance with the double-edged sword is it's designed to separate. 
It's designed to divide. Sim differently, um, the single the single blade, the single um, edge sword is purely designed to cut or to pierce, but the double edge is to divide. And in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, it says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give account. Christianity is actually black and white. You're either in or you're out. And you know, Jesus' command is simple here. Stop living with a confused, compromised faith and repent. The consequence of continuing with a foot in each camp is detrimental. In fact, it's a death sentence. I remembered back as I was preparing for this about um, a time in my life that was really significant. I was 18 years of age and I'd been brought up in a Christian home. I believed God was real. I can never remember in my life not believing God was real. Always have. Oh, hey, Louie. <laughs> and I remember at this moment when I was 18, I had really been living compromised as a Christian. I would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I was living in every other possible way. My life did not represent a godly life. It did not represent uh, being a follower of Christ. I feel still bad to this day at some of the people that I was, you know, hanging out with saying, oh, I'm a Christian, what they must think a Christian is because my life did not represent that. But, you know, I remember having this significant moment and, and at the time I thought it was just a thought I'd had, but I look back now and I know that it was the Holy Spirit, it was God giving me this picture. But I had this thought where I was standing at the edge of a cliff and it was as if someone was there with me and they would say, Amy, if you jump off this cliff, you are going to die. But I would never jump off the cliff. If I'm looking over a cliff and someone says, you're going to die if you jump off this cliff, why would I do that? I would never do that. That would be so stupid. And it was like it clicked in my mind that if I believe in God, like I know he's real, why am I not living for him? Why am I not living the life that God has for me and living under him and giving everything over to him. And from that moment, I actually recommitted my life to Jesus and I've never looked back. This was 18 years ago now. And I've always felt that at that moment, I'd had one foot in each camp and I had to make a decision because for me, it was like, this is life or death. I wonder if some of you are here tonight and this is where you're at at the moment. Some of you are 18, some of you are slightly older, you've come from different backgrounds. Perhaps this is something that you feel at the moment that, you know what, I don't really know which camp I'm in. Am I in the world's or am I in with God's? The really exciting thing is that it doesn't need to take a lightning bolt to strike you down and have this huge moment. In fact, that moment I had was actually based on a choice that I said, you know what, I think I just need to choose this here. I need to choose God because this is not good what I'm doing. And in that one choice, my whole life changed. Obviously, when we come to God and when we recommit our lives to God, it's not as if all of a sudden everything's perfect. There was things I had to learn. I had some very interesting moments in those early times as, when I was sort of 18, 19 as a Christian, trying to work out what to do and how to live. But God gently guides us through that. Jesus calls us to know what we believe and to live that out, to not tolerate sin, 
or bow to the pressure of being open-minded to accommodate to our current culture. If we think back to all the different gods and temples in Pergamon that I described at the start, I wonder if our culture can be a little bit similar. We need this, so we go here. We want that, so we go here. We desire this, so we go there. We follow this influencer, so we do that thing. I wonder if that's something that has crept into our lives. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I know at times I've thought, oh, that's awesome. Yep, let's do that. And then I've probably told five other people and they've done that too. Now, I'm not saying that everything here in the world is evil and we need to start our own little community and not talk to anyone or do anything, but I'm saying there's certain things that cause us to compromise where we know we start to get that Holy Spirit conviction where we think, maybe this is not right. Maybe it's something you're watching on Netflix or maybe it's a person you're hanging out with or maybe it's that you've had one too many drinks out at the party. Maybe it's that you said something really inappropriate to someone. These are the things that cause us to compromise, and unfortunately, we lead others into that too. The final commitment and the promise that Jesus says to this church, and it's actually a beautiful reward, is this. In verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. Now, both manna and the white stone are two symbols for eternal life. Manna, the first one, being a Jewish symbol, and the white stone being a Gentile symbol for eternal life. And I'm going to talk firstly about the white stone. There's actually quite a few different ideas going around about what the white stone means. It's really interesting. But the one that prevails, the one that's the most common and particularly talking to the Church of Pergamum was that in the ancient times when the emperor would send out invites to parties, festivals, banquets, he would send the invitations on a white marble stone with your name written on it. It's a bit fancier than the wedding invites we get today, isn't it? Imagine that. But this was what they did. This was in the pagan culture that they would have a white marble stone with your name on it. That was your entry into the party. Now, as we heard last week with Amanda, and I'll tell you again now, that in Pergamum, the Christians were never invited to these festivities. They were really ostracized. ostracized. They were on the outside. They would never have received an invitation like this to a festival or to a party. And Jesus makes a point here to say that he will invite them to his awesome party, his ultimate feast and banquet with a new name that no one else knows, almost like your own secret nickname with Jesus, showing a complete intimacy, really, in the relationship you have with him. But also that newness, what does that remind you of? It's that new identity that we are given in Christ when we, when we have given our lives over to him, when we've said, you know what, I can't do this, and Jesus, I'm going to follow you. He gives us a new identity in him, so both for now, but also this eternal life that we will see once we pass. Now, the manna, you probably might have heard about manna. It's in the Old Testament when the Israelites are uh, stuck in wilderness and it's like a type of bread. And it, basically, they were starving and God supernaturally um, provided food, this manna for them. It, it basically fell out of the sky. And the hidden manna refers to a portion of this provided manna that was actually placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was being miraculously preserved so that it would be multiplied uh, to feed God's people when the Messiah came. 
So Jesus is offering to share some of this. He's, he's waiting. It's going to be multiplied. And he's wanting to share this with us all. He's wanting to share this with the people that are victorious, the people that have trusted in him, that have been through so much but have still clung to his name. Manna really represents provision for us. And you know what? God has provided for us. He provided his son, Jesus, who died on the cross to bear our sins, to take our punishment, to restore us into a new life with Christ. And Jesus says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And we're going to receive communion now. And I just want you to still your hearts and perhaps just shut your eyes at this moment. I'm just going to ask a few questions and say a few statements. And I just want you to be uh, not distracted. Have your eyes closed as I share these. Perhaps today you feel confused in your faith. Or maybe you know you have been making compromises to fit into today's culture. Maybe you know you need to change a behavior that is causing others to stumble. Or perhaps you feel at times you have one foot in each camp, one in the world and one in God's family. We're going to take this opportunity now to commune with God and ask for his forgiveness, for his perfect love to fill our hearts again today. I'm just going to pray. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts for communion. As we sit before you today, we ask for your forgiveness. For the times we have allowed other things to take your place in our lives. For the times we have permitted compromise and confusion to creep into our faith. For the times we have led others astray. And for the times we have ignored your Holy Spirit's promptings. Lord, please forgive us. Thank you, Lord, that you give us ways to connect with you. We thank you for your word that guides us every day. Lord, speak to us now as we commune with you. Amen. I'll just ask those people that are coming forward to help with communion to come forward now. So, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We will now receive communion together. We'll have the Flavels up the back here and the Atkinsons up the back and Mark and I here. So why don't you make your way down and receive communion.
you're still uh, reflecting, feel free to stay seated. But, um, let's uh, stand and sing. Your 